Eisenberg on WHMP. This is Bill Newman and Talk the Talk. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And welcome everyone to the show. We have today, this is a momentous day, and we have today with us John Pucci, who has been our commentator and legal analyst for the Trump legal travails going back for a long time now. We really appreciate your being with us today, especially John. Uh, there'll be an arraignment of Donald Trump. As of this moment in the morning, the indictments themselves have not been uh, released, but we think we know a fair amount about what's in them. And I would appreciate your, your perspective on what will happen today at the arraignment and whether this is a mere formality or whether this actually has significance to the legal proceedings. So an arraignment is a uh, very, typically a very low key procedural uh, beginning to a criminal case. Um, in this case, uh, there's no issues of danger uh, from Trump to other people by himself personally. So there'll be no, he won't be required to post any bail. But what he essentially does is he shows up in court he stands in front of a judge. Um, he pleads not guilty. He has his team of lawyers there with him. He pleads not guilty to all charges. Uh, they agree. They've already agreed that he won't have to post any bail. And then he'll be taken out of public sight into the sheriff's office there in New York, where he'll be fingerprinted. Uh, they may take a photo of him, uh, although he certainly doesn't need. <laughs> we don't need a photo to know, know, know what he looks like. Uh, and he will be whisked away. The, uh, the uh, indictment will be unsealed. They may or may not read the indictment into the record. Uh, typically, they would read it in. Uh, just as typically, defense counsel would waive the reading of the indictment. Uh, it could be, uh, I'm sure it'll be the only case uh, bringing, being brought forward in that courtroom uh, for arraignment. Oftentimes, there's many arraignments that happen on a single day, particularly in New York. In this instance, it's going to be in a separate courtroom. He'll be whisked away to the sheriffs. He'll be released on his own recognizance. And the case will be off and running officially in the in the court system. It'll be numbered. It'll be officially a case. It'll be officially a public case. And he will he has been charged as a felon. And even if he's acquitted, he'll have a record for being charged. Uh, but we're a long way from figuring out how that's going to end up. So, John, at an arraignment, the charges are made known to the defendant. The defendant pleads, bail or release conditions are set. Something else happens at arraignment typically, which is the next court appearance is established by the judge. And I'm wondering whether we should look to see how soon that is and whether that will give us some indication about whether this judge intends for this case to be pushed ahead with some some rapidity. Your thoughts about that? Well, typically, uh, you're right. Typically, the next thing that the last thing that happens is an, at an arraignment is a judge tells the defendant when his next hearing is, his or her next hearing is. Um, in this instance, it being a little bit unusual, uh, it may be that the judge uh, proposes to the Trump's lawyers with the prosecutors, uh, I want you to come back to me within 72 hours with a schedule for how we're going to proceed in this matter. So it's uncertain in this unusual instance, you know, what the schedule will be. 
but he'll have a date soon today or soon to show up or have his lawyers show up for what's called a status conference uh, in court. And, you know, as things unfold, there'll be defense motions uh, to file. Uh, uh, Trump's uh, lead lawyer, Joe Tacopino, has said there'll be a motion to dismiss the indictment, which I'm skeptical about. Um, not, not that it won't be filed, but that it would succeed, very rarely succeeded. And uh, the, it's going to be assigned to a judge. Uh, I think it's already been announced it's going to be assigned to Judge Merkin, M-E-R-C-A-N, who's a very experienced judge. And in fact, the judge who sat on the trial uh, of Trump's organizations uh, when they were found guilty by a jury and on the Alan Weisselberg case who pled guilty uh, to tax fraud and was sentenced by Judge Birkin to prison, where he remains uh, on Rikers Island, which is not a very nice part of New York City. So, John, I, I don't mean to <clears throat> make uh, a bigger deal out of this than it is, but it strikes me that this fight and it will be a fight, in my opinion, about scheduling is actually crucially important because Trump's basic game plan when faced with legal travails is delay and delay and delay. And he doesn't want this trial before the presidential election or the primaries. I assume the prosecution wants to move forward as expeditiously as possible. Am I uh, misreading this first fight? You're not misreading it. It's really up to the judge to set the schedule and there'll be a back and forth. Uh, there's no book. There's no place in the books where you'll see a provision uh, for what comes between now and the trial. It's there. They're, 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 uh, uh, every case is uh, a separate entity to itself. This case in particular, and the judge is going to set motion, a motion hearing. He may say to the Jack Tacopino and the other lawyers, you know, you need, if you're going to file any pretrial motions, a motion to suppress, uh, a motion uh, to dismiss, they need to be filed within two weeks. They'll say, no, we want two months. It may be settled at three weeks. And, and, and the, the schedule then will be flexible and unfold off that date. Um, so there's no place in the books you're going to find a schedule uh, in a typical criminal case like this. In federal court, John, typically at an arraignment in addition to what we've said are the uh, component pieces of an arraignment the federal judge will set a trial date in state court not nearly as often does that happen and rather as you point out the next event might be a status conference which is the parties get together the prosecution the defense and the judge it's an open court and they discuss the various matters and procedures and scheduling and I'm wondering whether or not this is in the judge's interest to try to establish a trial date saying that's the outside date, that's the date this trial starts, everything else has to happen between now and then, or whether this will be a little more loosey-goosey, we'll figure it out as we go along. Depends on the judge's practices. The judge could say we're going to try this case in October, and we're setting that as the deadline to pick a jury, we're going to pick a jury on the first Tuesday in October, and uh, we're going to work and fill the space between now and then with everything that needs to be done in this case. And, and we'll turn to the district attorney and say, look, you need to produce discovery in this matter. You've got a lot, a lot of witnesses that testified in the grand jury. The defense is entitled to those transcripts. There are records that you have assembled that you're going to produce in the prosecution. You need to produce all those records 
so there's there's a process here that has to take place if the da wants to move forward they should be arrive at court today with a thick packet of records and grand jury transcripts to give to trump's team and and cut into the delay process uh, and they should be able to say that to the judge today. Judge, we're, we want an early trial date. We're making either early discovery or the earliest discovery possible. Here's all the transcripts, the grand jury transcripts. They can prepare for trial. Here's all the documents we're going to uh, present at the trial. And we want to get go forward. The judge then, you know, that, that's a helpful thing for the prosecution to do. They have to produce all that stuff anyway. Like, why not today? Uh, so in my mind, if I were the prosecutor and I wanted an early trial date, I'd want to tell the judge today, we've made all the discovery available that they're entitled to, uh, to, to prepare for trial. But John, from the defense's point of view, uh, this is going to be a case in which there are voluminous documents and transcripts and records and witness interviews and documents that the prosecution is going to want to put in at the trial and videotapes including of trump himself i would suspect um, all of that in fairness to the defense takes a long time to review and when they say judge this is a mammoth amount of material look at the shopping carts full of stuff they just gave us we have to read it digest it prepare it put it in order figure it all out and come up with our defense i mean that could take a year or two uh, it's not an unreasonable position, it seems to me. Your thoughts about that? I, I think you're overblowing the magnitude, the size of the case. Not the magnitude of the case, but the size of the discovery in the case. I think if there were 15 or 20 witnesses in the grand jury, uh, some of them were lengthy, according to press reports. There's a guy named Pecker who we can talk about, David Pecker, who's an important witness in this, who testified for five hours. There's a guy, Costello. Uh, who was Michael Cohen's old lawyer, he testified for five hours. You know, those are large transcripts, but the, you know, Trump has three really sophisticated lawyers. He's got a team of lawyers behind them. Uh, you know, I don't think your pitch, which you're making, I, I'm surprised to hear you representing Trump in this matter, I, by the way, I just want to say. I'd, I'd be surprised uh, if a judge was impressed with that, represent, that presentation and say, oh, we're going to put it off for a year. No, I think the judge will set a trial date and work within that trial date and, and, and be flexible, not unreasonable, but, yeah, you know, it's time to go. It's time to go. This is Buzz John Pucci. I, I want to know from you, obviously, this case, the political implications of this case and the uh, sort of judicial implications of this case have been conflated for obvious reasons. As far as Judge Mercan, how does he sec separate making sure that this trial is done in a fair way, both in terms of due process to Trump and in, in, in terms of uh, the, the state's interest in the case from the political passion that is inspired by this and, and his obligation to make sure the public has uh, access to the information it has a right to know? Well, uh, it's an art, not a science. I think the the judicial oversight of this case, of, of any case really, although there are rules, um, this kind of a case, uh, given public exposure and interest, um, you know, will require a very experienced judge who can be thoughtful and a good listener, but decisive and stick with stick with his rulings. It's Judge Morcan in this instance who fills that bill. 
Um, so it's an art and, and you have to ride the horse you're on and the trial has started and the horse has left the barn and you know, you're on, you're on it and you're in charge and we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Here's an interesting issue that's gonna, I think, fly um, up in the face of this trial and, and he's gonna have to decide, he alone will have to decide what to do it. Should the judge order an anonymous jury? Now, in a small, modest criminal case, and this is a mo relatively modest criminal case, you might say, why would that ever happen? That seems completely out of hand. It's, it's, it's very burdensome on the jurors. It's burdensome on the sheriffs. It's burdensome on the whole system. But there's a parallel case, uh, which is a case brought by a woman named Carol against Trump relating to her allegation that he raped her uh, in a, in a uh, store, essentially the back room of a store many years ago. That case is teed up for uh, her civil claims against him in the New York court system and soon, like next month, and the judge has ordered an anonymous jury because he thinks the threats to the jurors in this kind of a, in that kind of a case, a civil case against Trump, is, are so significant that you're gonna have an anonymous jury. Now, I will tell you, anonymous juries are extraordinarily rare. They're almost always reserved for terrorist murder, mob murder cases. Uh, I don't really, I, I think, I'm not sure I can recall an anonymous jury in federal court in Massachusetts or in state court. But that has already been granted uh, in this uh, civil case against Trump. And, and it's because he brings such violence into the picture. And you certainly don't want jurors exposed to violence, identified on social media where they can be haunted for the rest of their lives with threats against themselves. So I think that issue right out of the box would be something the prosecution may seek and the judge has complete discretion to either grant an anonymous jury or not. But it would be an exception, a really rare exception to the rules to have an anonymous jury, but this may be a case like the Carroll defamation case against Trump where it's justified. We are speaking with John Pucci. John is a partner at the Springfield and Western Massachusetts based firm of Buckley Richardson. He was a former US attorney for many, many years and head of the US attorney's office in Springfield. He has a long background in prosecuting white collar crimes. When we come back, I want to ask a question. There's so much to talk about today, but I would love to get your initial impressions at this trial of the people of the state of New York versus Donald Trump. Will the defendant testify? We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What is Brockton, Massachusetts known for? For me, Brockton means a good night's sleep because Brockton is where they make therapeutic mattresses. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you here. Therapeutic, the lesser known mattress made in Massachusetts. Does that alone mean they're any good? It doesn't, but they are good. In fact, they're great on par with famous name mattresses that cost a lot more. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. A lot of people have purchased a therapeutic mattress at Talon Furniture over the years, at least a thousand, and they're all sleeping well. A therapeutic mattress really is as good as the famous name mattress. And they're made by fellow base daters. 
In the grand scheme of the global mattress economy, Therapeutic is close to home. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. What I really love is a Therapeutic mattress is clean. No toxic chemicals or off-gassing. I've walked the factory floor. I've seen how they're made. Talon Furniture, home of Therapeutic, just down the hill from Amherst College in the sleepy part of town. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone, two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. It's back. The Golf Club, presented by Swing Oil Beer Company. You get 11 rounds of golf to some of the best tracks in the area, like Keeney Park Golf Course, The Ledges, Wyckoff Country Club, Brattleboro Country Club, and more for only $1.99. Let's see. That's only 20 bucks a round. Now that's more than proper etiquette. A perfect treat for yourself or any hacker you know. And it's ready to go at the Shop 30 store for a limited time. The Golf Club, presented by Swing Oil Beer Company. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And on this, the day of Donald Trump's arraignment, people of the state of New York versus Donald J. Trump, I would like some preliminary thoughts from you, John Pucci, about whether, well, let's start here. Do you think Trump, there's any chance that Trump would testify at this trial? Well, it's extremely unusual for any defendant to testify in any criminal case, state or federal. And then we can talk about that at some length. But the bottom line is that's the reality. It's very rare for defendants to testify. Um, in this instance, uh, it, he's, he hasn't testified. He was asked to testify before the January 6th uh, congressional committee, and he wouldn't do that. And although he's on his social media stage effectively testifying to the public. Uh, it's never been subject to cross-examination. And uh, I think there's a huge risk here that uh, for him, but in a, in a last gasp, uh, he's got to make that decision at the very last minute. The prosecution presents its case, the defense presents its case. The one thing a judge always has to do in a criminal case is ask the defendant and inform the defendant in public court, in front of his lawyers, individually, sir, you know you have the right to testify. It's your choice. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've consulted with your lawyers in this matter, but it's your choice, not their choice. And you have to decide whether to testify. Do you want to take the stand in this matter? That may be the very last thing that happens in this trial. And uh, I think it's very unusual. It would be very uh, unexpected and probably against his lawyer's advice to testify because he's got so much baggage and so much to explain, but it's possible. It would strike, it does strike me that his lawyers would be apoplectic with him getting on the stand, just totally unable to control what he would say or how he would say it. And he would be subject to a lot of cross-examination on the statements he's made in the past, including who's Stormy Daniels, never knew the person. I mean, how is he going right. to get how would he possibly get beyond that right well there's pictures of him with her on that whatever whether they had sex or not somebody else can figure out but there's no doubt she was there there's pictures of them smiling and 
sort of in each other's arms. So there's not much question that they had uh, some relationship, uh, sexual or otherwise. So it's, comp it's a complicated piece, but this is gonna be a real challenge for the lawyers. This is a, an almost impossible piece of representation. Um, and the lawyers are gonna want him not to speak publicly. Every single thing he has said and will say publicly can be used against him in the trial. Um, it can be introduced, it's called an admission, a, a party's admission, it can be introduced. And so he's at risk of anything he says being played to a jury and proven to be a lie or proven to be helpful to the prosecution in some other way. But he is a handful. It wouldn't be a surprise to me if on the first day of the trial, he's got a different set of lawyers representing him because he'd be almost impossible to, to, to represent. And one of the things they're no doubt gonna to say to him is you can't, you've gotta stop making public statements. He's gonna reject that advice. And right out of the box, you're gonna have probably a conflict between the lawyers and Trump on the issue of whether he should continue to publicly espouse positions, fact positions. Uh, and it's, you know, if you're not in, if you're, you and your client are not in sync on fundamental issues, like will you make public statements that could be used against you? If you're not in sync, then it creates a chasm between you as a lawyer and the defendant as a, you know, going forward. So I wouldn't be surprised if two months from now we're talking about a different legal team. You've been very critical, John Pucci, of the lawyering and the lawyering skills of Trump's lawyers historically. You seem to have a much higher regard for this defense team. Uh, tell us, tell us what's going on here. He's managed to find good lawyers for a change, real lawyers. I mean, in the sense that they have uh, skills and courtroom presence and experience and know how to try a case as opposed to their fixers like Michael Cohen? Yes, I think he's got a team of quality lawyers. The, the top uh, lawyer is a guy named Joe Tacopino, who's a bit of a brawler in the, in the parlance of the practice of law. He's very experienced, he's very tough, he's uh, aggressive, he's uh, accomplished, he's won a lot of different kinds of criminal cases. Uh, he is a real lawyer and, and not to be feared by the prosecution, but uh, somebody who will be able to handle um, this case well. He's got another lawyer named Susan Nechelez, who's a Yale Law School graduate, very smart, very capable. She represented um, the Trump organizations in the tax fraud case in which the Trump organizations were convicted. So she's, she's been on top uh, of, a, of a case in which Trump's interests are were foremost, and she was able to, to represent him successfully, uh, not successfully in terms of a verdict, but successfully in terms of managing the relationship with him. She's a talented lawyer, and he's now added a new lawyer, a guy named Todd Blanche, uh, who works at a very famous, really sophisticated uh, New York law firm uh, called Cadwallader, who interestingly enough, resigned his partnership at Cadwallader to take on this representation. So he's a little bit older uh, as a lawyer, uh, maybe not as old as us, but um, somebody who's at a point in his career that where a partnership at Cadwallader is not as important to him as taking on you know, a big case like this. So that's three good lawyers. There'll be another you know, younger lawyers who'll provide paperwork and support underneath it. I think Trump has a quality, quality legal team uh, 
uh, going into this. And that's a big difference for him because he's been surrounded by people like Rudy Giuliani, um, you know, who are just complete busts as lawyers. So he's, he's, he's got a good team for himself. Last question for you for today, John Pucci. Uh, when we look at the arraignment and the proceedings, uh, there'll be obviously uh, many, many media reports, but I would like to know um, what do you think we should be looking for in particular today at the arraignment? I think it's largely a non-event. And they, the, the one thing that'll happen today, which will be enlightening, although I don't think it's gonna be <coughs> a big deal in the long run, is they're gonna release the indictment. So you'll see the actual charges, <coughs> excuse me, he's facing. And you know that's, that's what's gonna be the core of what goes to the jury. It's gonna be the court of motions to dismiss. It's gonna be the core and it will, it will cabin the allegations against him. So there's been some theory that there may be other things besides the Swami Daniels payoffs. I don't think that's true. I think today's an important uh, space to learn what the case will be. Just just in the minute we have left, John Pucci, sometimes you'll see indictments that just have the charges read and they're pretty sterile. And sometimes they tell the story. If you were involved as a district attorney, what would you what would the indictments look like? No question that what well, you're talking about, the second category is what we refer to in the business as a speaking indictment that tells the story. It's not a bare bones. Here's the statute. We allege a violation. Grand jury returned it. That can be done on one page. A speaking uh, uh, indictment tells the, the long story of what happened and when it happened. And if I were the prosecution, knowing the public exposure, this is a way to get public exposure and public publication of the nuts and bolts of what the government's going to allege, a speaking indictment would be very important and very useful to tell the story in a formal way that's going to go to the jury, um, vitally important to do a speaking indictment that will literally speak the truth as to what the case is and speak to the public about what the case is. Um, very important. We have been speaking with Attorney John Pucci who has been our go-to person on Trump's legal travails. We really, really appreciate your time today. We'll be speaking with John regularly as this case goes forward. And when we, next time when we talk, I want to find out from Attorney John Pucci, how in life are you ever going to pick a jury? How are you going to find 12 people who say, oh, I have no opinion about this. I can listen to this, what happens in the courtroom. I won't bring any preconceived ideas with me. How is that ever going to happen? But we leave it for today. John Pucci, thank you so much for your time and expertise. My pleasure. And I will answer that question. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Contract negotiations are continuing for Hampshire Regional Education Association members. The group met last night to discuss their current contract. Members expressed concerns over what they say are relatively low teaching salaries. The U.S. Department of Education reports in 2020, Hampshire Regional teachers were earning $70,000 compared to $84,000 statewide. If a fair contract is to be ratified by the school committee, it could take effect the next school year and run through 2026. 
First Light Hydro Generating Co. is promising to spend $152 million on upgrades at its three facilities on the Connecticut River as part of a new 50-year license renewal to operate. The Flows and Fish Passage Settlement Agreement had to be filed by Friday with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. First Light says the commitments made in the agreement for the hydro pump facility at Northfield Mountain and two hydroelectric dams in Turner's Falls will include direct investments in environmental protection. Environmental advocacy groups have criticized First Light for their impact on fish, the Connecticut River, and the surrounding environment. Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner has submitted her fiscal year 2024 $61.6 million budget proposal to the City Council, a 6.5% increase over the current year's operating budget. Mayor Wiedegardner says they focused on a shared common purpose of providing a balanced city budget that realistically maintains services and programs while confronting pressures beyond their control. Clouds and scattered showers for the next few days. The key thing to remember here is that there's not going to be a ton of rain, and today's no exception. Mostly cloudy, scattered, light showers, mainly north of Northampton, a high of 60 to 64. Showers and pockets of drizzle tonight, low of 40 to 46. Mostly cloudy, scattered showers tomorrow, 48 to 52. Could be some thunderstorms here Thursday afternoon. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Jorge Rochi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden se aventuró el lunes a los suburbios de Minneapolis para hablar sobre trabajos en fábricas y contrastar su agenda con el último tipo que tuvo este trabajo. El último tipo, como Biden llama a Donald Trump, aterrizaba simultáneamente en Nueva York para convertirse en el primer expresidente en ser arrestado. La Casa Blanca de Biden, que se ha negado a involucrarse en el espectáculo legal que rodea a Trump, esperaba convertir el momento de la pantalla dividida en una oportunidad para mostrar los logros del presidente y una administración relativa libre de dramas. Representó una repetición de la elección que los votantes hicieron en 2020 y que podrían tener que hacer nuevamente en 2024, ya que ambos hombres tienen la intención de buscar la Casa Blanca. Biden se ofreció a sí mismo como un formulador de políticas veterano, mientras que Trump, siempre el farandulero, pretendía utilizar la lectura de cargos del martes por cargos penales para generar donaciones de campaña y animar a los votantes republicanos. En otras informaciones y como parte del proyecto de arte público El Corazón de Holyoke, Nueva Esperanza y Yuma Amherst han traído desde Puerto Rico a cuatro artistas, parte del colectivo Moribibí, una colectiva de mujeres artistas visuales y activistas quienes están trabajando en un nuevo mural, el cual se instalará en el Distrito Cultural puertorriqueño de Holyoke una vez esté completado a finales de abril. Durante el pasado fin de semana, la comunidad se dio cita para pintar junto con las artistas diferentes secciones del mural y este martes 4 de abril, el colectivo Moribibí está invitando nuevamente a la comunidad a que participen de esta experiencia para pintar en conjunto los segmentos restantes de La Cultura es Poder desde las 3 y 30 de la tarde en Nueva Esperanza, ubicado en el 401 de la calle Main en South Holyoke. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are joined by Jim Hicks, who is the editor of the Massachusetts Review. He has been the editor for the past 12 years, I believe. He is also a professor of comparative literature at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Also, Shanta Lee, she is an award-winning poet, the voice of cultural reviews with Vermont Public Radio and a professor as well. Uh, let me start with you, Jim Hicks. 
big day, big week for the That's Massachusetts right. Review. Tell us what's happening Thursday at UMass. Yep, Thursday at 6 p.m., 6 to 8, we're having a launch party and reading for our spring issue, which is a really wonderful thing. And, uh, and Shanta is one of the people who will be reading there. And uh, it's just a celebration for, you know, we're pretending that spring actually does come in April to, uh, to Western Massachusetts. Yeah. Okay, so for those of our listeners who say Massachusetts Review, maybe that's self-explanatory, but who don't know what the publication is, give us a bit of its history and what it serves and what its place is in American letters. Well, that's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's tough to summarize quickly, but I'll try. Um, we were founded way back in 1959. I always say that the magazine might have been born the same day I was. Um, it, uh, it's always been a magazine of literature, the arts, and public affairs that has a particular political spin. We try to be um, progressive and center voices that aren't typically being heard in the literary sphere. And, uh, and certainly in the last dozen years or so, I think it might be a baker's dozen by now. That's what, uh, that's what we've been trying to do um, as well. The Massachusetts Review comes out how many times a year? Uh, four times. It's a quarterly. And you are the ultimate voice and decider on what the content will be? <laughs> or is it a commit? How does it work? It's always been a collective, and it will always be a collective uh, decision-making process. Um, I, uh, I try to, uh, to, to steer the ship, but it has its own momentum, and it, uh, it does very well in uh in doing that but um but yeah we um we talk talk through all kinds of things we try to publish roughly half prose half poetry at least in terms of the numbers of authors the prose gets split between essays and uh, and stories and uh, and the decisions get made by a whole big group of people in fact uh, that group's become much bigger and more diverse in the last few years because we've really pushed to try and, and make that happen on our masthead. Yeah. Well, let me turn from Jim Hicks, the editor of the Massachusetts Review, to Shanta Lee, who is a person, a contributor to this spring edition. Uh, you could be published and have been published many, many places. You have award-winning collections of poetry. Uh, why submit to the Massachusetts Review, Shanta Lee? <laughs> well, I'll keep this brief. It's really... I've I've held the the review in high regard. So when Jeffrey Dietman um, reached out to me last week, at uh, last week last year, because of my work feels like last week, uh, to about Amalia Liu's work, which is a section I'll be reading, I was very honored um, to be a part of this translation project, and um, that is how we were able to also not able, but got published in the review is through this um, selection. So it's something that's been like, I've wanted to be included in the review for a really long time prior to this. Well, you mentioned reading. Could you share with us a bit or at least some few lines from what you will be reading on Thursday again at the chapel? What time, Jim? 6 p.m. Bill. Yep. The old chapel at UMass on the campus of UMass Amherst. Let me turn back to Shanta. Uh, can you share a little bit so our listeners can have a sense of what your work sounds like? 
Absolutely. So this is actually from the original work of Amalia Lu Poso Figueroa um, from a whole collection. This is just one story that uh, Jeffrey Dietman and I are working on. Fidelia Cordoba, translated from Spanish by Jeffrey Dietman and Chantilly, myself. And here's just the opening paragraph to what the appetites of the listeners. The nanny Fidelia Cordoba kept a rhythm in her tetas. She'd been born on the banks of the river Sipi, and she had bulging tetas, small and round like a pair of carrosos with retractile nipples that also had a sense of direction. They were all at once compass, sextant, weather vane, plumb line, quadrant, astrolabe, point you left, point you right, or wherever you needed to go, but never get you lost kind of nipples. The nipples on the the nipples on the tetas of the Nani Fidelia pointed north and south and east and west, up and down, inward and outward. They always showed the right way to go. The nipples on the tetas of the Nani Fidelia were a navigator, the pathfinder, the salvation of all those who lost their way on the water, on land, but especially on water. The nipples on the tetas of the Nani Fidelia must have been born under the sign of Scorpio because they moved like fish and water. Wow. Wow. Um, wow, thank you for that. Uh, let me turn back to Jim Hicks. Could, could you uh, perhaps give us a sampling briefly of an, another piece that will be in this edition of the Massachusetts Review? Sure. Um, one of the uh, guests on uh, Thursday who will be reading um, some of the poetry that he's published over many years, Mart Martina Spada will be reading. And uh, I would be absolutely insane to try and read Martine's poems because <laughs> no one should read them except him. It's sort of like you know trying to sing a Tom Waits song or a Leonard Cohen song, right? All you hear is the absence of the author. It's, but... Uh, but Martine would not forgive me if I didn't get some poetry onto the show today. So here's um, Matthew Olsman, who's just up the river from us, uh, teaches at this little school in Hanover on the wrong side of the river. Um, and the poem is called Yet. It has an epigraph. The victims' families have not been notified yet. The victims' families have not been notified yet. We do not have the relevant information yet. We will make that information available as it becomes available, but the victims have not been identified yet. In fact, the victims might not even be victims yet, though if not yet victims, they might still become victims by the time we do this next month or in three years or each time we hold a press conference similar to this one of which you already know there will be many. Until then, they are not yet in our hearts, thoughts, or prayers. They are free to keep living until the moment of their arrival in the wrong place at the it could never happen here time. And I'll stop there, although the poem does continue in that vein. Wow, wow. Uh, why have a public reading? Uh, this is a quarterly a literary and arts publication. It is extraordinary in its graphics and its presentation. It's a beautiful book four times a year. Why have a uh, public event at the uh, at UMass? I mean, it's at the old chapel, which of course is a beautiful, beautiful venue, but why have this event? 
Well, uh, lots of reasons for it, I think. Um, first of all, um, you mentioned that the magazine is particularly beautiful. It may be more beautiful than it's ever been. Um, we've, in fact, are launching this issue as the first, I think, from the bottom up redesign of the Massachusetts Review. It could be per that the only one that's ever happened. We still look like we did, but we're, I think, uh, with the artwork of our uh, amazing designer, Pam Glavin, it's, I think, cleaner, bolder, simpler. Um, so, so that's one thing to celebrate. But mainly it's just to bring people together. Um, we love what we do. We love to share it. But, uh, you know, communities need to have collective events. They need to come together and, uh, and celebrate the values that we share. Yeah. Chantilly, it's an experience. It's fun. It's satisfying, gratifying in some ways to have a reading like this. What's your perspective? I tend to agree with that. I think that uh, in my experience of having read work and people coming up to me and saying it's different to hear it and have the orality and also match that with what's on the page, it just adds another layer. I also think it taps into... Um, how we are as humans, like going back to the fireside in a very tribal and primal sense of the orality of telling each other stories. And that's what this is. This is a fireside on Thursday. Let me ask you this. Did you write a poem specifically for the Massachusetts Review to submit it? Or is this what you, what you have and your translations and all the things that the Mass Review does? Did you have this work in your in your computer and said this i think would be a good fit for the mass review i want to submit it there this is where i oh. want jeffrey no so that's that even though i again it's like one of those it's like you as a writer you're like okay i want my work to be in this review so i still have that tucked in my head but no this is um like again this is a project and a relationship that jeffrey um developed with amalia Liu, and so then came to me and was reading her work and said we need to try to bring this to the United States. So this is actually a part of a bigger project. And these fantastical women, just a sample, which you'll hear on Thursday, um, hoping that we'll be bringing more of that here, the, the whole collection of stories that Amalia Liu has written. But uh, Shanta should be sending us her poetry in, oh. the, in the near future. I will do that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm glad we can facilitate all that. You heard yeah. it here first. Uh, <laughs> really good. So um, a, a last word from you both, please. Uh, Jim Hicks, Massachusetts Review is really an important publication and a gorgeous publication, as you point out. I'm wondering if you have some thoughts you'd like to share with us from the last minute we have here about the importance of this kind of a publication. It's a book. Four times a year, you put out a beautiful book. So your final thoughts. Yeah. Well, one other thing that, uh, that we'll be celebrating on Thursday is um, we're, we've launched a fundraiser for a new literary prize, which is, we're calling the Equeme Michael Thelwell Prize for writing on race, justice, and equality. And that's the great tradition of the Massachusetts Review has been to publish some of the most important work written on that subject in this country and, uh, and we want to honor that legacy and make sure it continues. So, um, so we're going to have this literary prize to make sure that, or help make that happen in the future. 
that's um, really important and, and really and Mike, significant. Mike, Mike Thelwell, by the way, was the first chair of AFROM and has spent a long time contributing yeah. editor for the Mass Review. Yeah. Wow. Okay, this is 6 to 8 o'clock, free and open to the public, Thursday at the Old Chapel on the UMass Amherst campus. Let's have a final word from you, Shanta. Oh, um, <laughs> well, I would say that um, something I've been thinking about that, you know, the literary and poetry and being speaking as a poet and writer across genres, it's the juice for our lives. And I would invite anybody to just come and be a part of not only the fireside, but be a part of community and it enlivens. It's elixir for the spirit. Shantali, Jim Hicks, you are elixirs for the spirit. Oh. Thank you both so very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. You had a temper like my jealousy, too hard, too greedy. How could you leave me when I needed to possess you? I hated you, I loved you too. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people. Local service. Local insurance, in partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote, 586-1000. Skateboarding, basketball, dancing. Ross Gay has plenty to talk about in his new book, Inciting Joy. Author of the best-selling Book of Delights, Ross Gay returns with Inciting Joy, a collection of essays on joy in its many forms. Pick up Inciting Joy, plus a new paperback edition of Book of Delights at Broadside Bookshop in downtown Northampton. Plus, order virtually any book on the Broadside website, then pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply. 
Are you tired of living with chronic pain, knee pain, joint pain? Listen carefully, because now there are new regenerative treatments now available here. QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, is now open, giving lasting relief to people with joint pain with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. Regenerative medicine uses highly concentrated healing agents from your own body. These powerful treatments can restore and repair damaged tissue in your achy joints, so you can move again without pain. QC Kinetics has over 100 clinics nationwide and has treated thousands of patients with incredible success. Their advanced protocols are an exciting way to manage pain from arthritis and injury without surgery or steroids or pain pills. If you've got pain in your knees, shoulders, hip, or back, you need to check out these new treatments. They can actually help your body restore and repair itself. Call now to schedule your free consultation with the local medical professionals at QC Kinetics. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We have with us, continuing our conversations about education and education funding and the importance of schools and how the state does or does not support our local school systems. We have Doug Selwyn and Jesus Leva. They are members, or Doug is a member of the Franklin County Continuing Revolution Education Committee. Uh, Jesus, very involved with uh, public school uh, uh, funding issues and we wanted you to be able to hear from them today because there is an event I think you want to know about. So let me uh, uh, turn first to uh, Doug. What's happening tonight, please? Well, tonight we are hosting an online uh, public forum on education funding in the state. Um, we're looking at what, how schools are funded or not funded uh, across the state, trying to figure out why in this very wealthy state um, with politicians uh, talking about how much children are our future and how education is the key to our future, why do so many of our school districts remain underfunded uh, perpetually every year? Uh, there was a headline in the recorder today, the Greenfield paper, about uh, the mayor talking about how there may be layoffs this year because uh, funding is tight again. And this is when we have an $8 billion rainy day fund at, at the state level. And we're trying to help people understand how does funding work and what can we do about it so that our kids are getting what they need. Okay, so this is a, a seminar, a meeting, a, a educational uh, uh, event about education. Um, how do we attend? Uh, you can go to the FCCPR website, fccpr.us, and there is a link on that on that opening page, and people can just sign up there and show up at seven o'clock online um, and take part. Are you all working with our local elected officials on this question of funding for schools? We reached out to our our local elected officials. Um, specifically, um, I had reached out to a city councilor uh, uh, about this as um, as the issues came up because I, as a longtime Northampton resident who recently moved to Greenfield, I kept seeing a perennial conversation that was very similar around school funding, where it just appeared that we didn't have the capacity at the local level to raise taxes to pay for 
additional school funding as costs increased, but um, clearly there that capacity to some level exists the state and the state. Um, the state is that the school funding and the school budget is at the heart of um, our local budgets and also at uh, with the relationship between the state and local governments in the form of local um, school aid. Okay, so let me ask one more time. How do we attend? Oh, and for that, give me one second. Our local officials, who's going to present tonight? Who are we going to hear from? Well, Joe Comerford will be there. Um, Lindsay Sabadosa will be there. Susanna Whips. So, so our legislative um, representatives are are will be there. Uh, Tracy Novick from the um, what the um, Massachusetts Association of School Committees. Thank you very much. Uh, Rob O'Donnell from DESE, from the Department of uh, Elementary and Secondary Education, the state level, will be there. Um, and then there'll be many people in the room who have experience with um, with education on all different levels. Cheryl Stanton, who's the superintendent of uh, Mohawk Trails, will be there too. Okay, one last time. Where do we sign up? I take it it's free and we can just attend. Where do we go? FCCPR.us. And there will be a link there. What time? Seven o'clock. Okay. Thank you very much, Doug Selwyn, uh, Jesus Leva. Thank you both so very much for your work. Thank you, our listeners, for being with us today on our very, very special day, very important day, very newsworthy. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for, certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. Find out how WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Matt Piper in New York at the courthouse where Donald Trump will be arraigned today. Across from this courthouse is a park where supporters of the former president are now gathered. Blue, red, and white flags adorning his name. Red Make America Great Again hats worn too. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is set to lead a protest here this hour. Trent Galloway is here from Atlanta. Wanted to be here to see A, what it drew, what kind of people, what the atmosphere was, and then ultimately probably just in support of Trump in a sense that I really think this is kind of a sham. With more on the arraignment, here's my colleague Stephen Portnoy. An arraignment is typically a short, straightforward legal proceeding. It involves a defendant being read the charges against him, then entering a plea before a judge sets conditions for release. But the initial appearance in the People versus Donald Trump will take place amid unprecedented security and with unusual accommodations made for the defendant and for the Secret Service. There'll be no handcuffs for Trump, 
and possibly no mugshot. Donald Trump himself might not even see these supporters of his as he's expected to be taken through back doors of this courthouse hours from now. I'm Matt Piper in Lower Manhattan. Now with more CBS News, here's Monica Ricks. A big ceremony today to celebrate Finland joining NATO. Here's CBS's Holly Williams. NATO has now expanded even more, which is exactly what Vladimir Putin didn't want. Uh, Russia will now share a border with a NATO member state that is more than 800 miles long, while right next door, Sweden is also seeking to join the alliance. President Biden also welcomed Finland today in a statement saying today we are more united than ever. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan's former chief of staff, Roy McGrath, is dead following a three-week manhunt. CBS's Scott McFarlane. In a statement, McGrath's attorney called it a tragic ending and said McGrath never wavered about his innocence. Hogan issued a statement saying, in part, we are praying for Mr. McGrath's family and loved ones. In Chicago, voters are picking their next mayor. In Chicago's runoff election, former Chicago Public Schools CEO Paul Vallis and Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson have been busy doing some last-minute campaigning, Vallis stressing public safety. That's ultimately going to be my legacy as mayor. Johnson says he's done a lot of community work in his current position. The city of Chicago wants a leader that can bring people together. That's CBS's Jennifer Kuyper reporting. If you have watched The Last of Us, you may want to stay away from Nevada. The CDC just identified a lethal drug-resistant fungus there that's becoming a major risk for hospital and nursing home patients. This is CBS News. Hire with minimal effort and maximum success with Indeed. Their powerful hiring platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. My spaniel sailor arrives each afternoon for his walk in the steep woods. And usually in the spring, we return with plenty of tales of spotted white-tailed deer and a stream-soaked coat of wet hair. Eden Pure Thunderstorm's air purifier that uses proven oxy technology to the rescue. I plug the compact unit into the wall and let sailor relax in the freshening air. And the unit comes with a six-foot USB cord for when we travel. There are over 300,000 units already sold. There are no filters to buy over and over again. Right now, you can save $200 on an Eden Pure Thunderstorm 3-pack for whole home protection. You get three units for under $200 for the kitchen, the basement, the fireplace room, the mudroom, anywhere you need clean-smelling air. Go to EdenPureDeals.com and put in discount code JOHN, J-O-H-N, to save $200. That's EdenPureDeals.com, discount code JOHN. Ship. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Around 150 people rallied outside City Hall in East Hampton as a show of support for Vito Perone. Perone, who was offered the superintendent job, had the offer rescinded after referring to two female members of the school committee as, quote, ladies. In an email, the group is calling on the city to reverse their decision. Perone had expressed regret for using the term, saying he meant it as a term of respect and not a microaggression. So far, school committee members have declined to comment on what was discussed during the executive session where they decided to rescind the offer. The driver of the vehicle that killed two pedestrians in East Hampton pleaded not guilty in Northampton District Court yesterday. 64-year-old Stuart Larkin of South Hadley is charged with two counts of negligent motor vehicle homicide and one count of speeding after hitting two pedestrians on August 2nd that were attempting to cross the street on Route 10 near the Burger King. An investigation concluded that Larkin should have seen the pedestrians in time to avoid hitting them. The case was continued until June 12th for a pretrial hearing. 
Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner has submitted her fiscal year 2024 $61.6 million budget proposal to the City Council, a 6.5% increase over the current year's operating budget. Mayor Wiedegardner says the focus was on a shared common purpose of providing a balanced city budget that realistically maintains services and programs while confronting pressures beyond their control. Clouds and scattered showers for the next few days. The key thing to remember here is that there's not going to be a ton of rain, and today's no exception. Mostly cloudy, scattered, light showers, mainly north of Northampton, a high of 60 to 64. Showers and pockets of drizzle tonight, low of 40 to 46. Mostly cloudy, scattered showers tomorrow, 48 to 52. Could be some thunderstorms here Thursday afternoon. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. Bill, there is this controversy that's brewing in East Hampton. I guess 150 people uh, came out yesterday to uh, articulate their frustration with the fact that the job offer um, for superintendent to Vito Perone had been withdrawn. The ostensible reason that we've been told about is that in an email, he's, he opened an email by saying, Dear ladies, which um, some, some, I guess, two people in particular found uh, to be microaggression being expressed in, in the descriptive ladies. And so they withdrew when they were, they had already voted four to three, had the school committee voted to offer him a contract. They then withdrew the offer for a contract over that, what they said was microaggression over the use of uh, ladies in the email. You think there is more to this story than we are getting even in the Gazette's coverage? No, I actually think that that's probably exactly the story, um, at least the public story. What really went into the vote to rescind the offer I don't think we have the whole story on that. What is, I think, covered up, ah, that's the wrong word, what is not focused on enough here is the initial vote, which was four to three to offer uh, the uh, superintendent, the non-superintendent, the job. And it only took one vote to switch sides uh, to say we actually uh, would prefer another candidate to be the superintendent of the East Hampton schools. This has been celebrated. The, uh, the job offer was celebrated as the return of the former principal. I think uh, he grew up in Northampton, in, North, in East Hampton. Uh, he certainly has a long relationship with the East Hampton schools. It was kind of like a return of the, uh, the prodigal son. Uh, but a four to three vote for uh, a superintendent is not, not a ringing endorsement from the school committee. And I assume that someone or someone's uh, were, was or were, in fact, offended by that greeting, dear ladies. Or, and I, and I'm, I don't know quite what to make of it, because if it had been sent to two men and it's, it, it had started, gentlemen, comma, here's what I want to do, uh, or here's what I want to say, um, I don't think uh, anyone would have been offended. I, I do think that ladies uh, is not really the most appropriate opening for a an email. Um, and I 
can see why someone would take offense at that, why that would result in the rescission of a job offer. I, that I don't, that doesn't compute for me. Either he's a great candidate and we really want him for superintendent and he said something that I didn't like and I asked him not to do it again. He said, fine. Um, or it was not a good job offer in the first place, in which case, why did you do it? Um, in terms of the prodigal son thing, I think he was a football coach at East Hampton. I think that he was a teacher uh, at East Hampton High School and I think that he was known by a lot of people there and I what what I was thinking when I said that there might be a story behind it sometimes something like um, using the term ladies uh, that level of affront that the rescission represents there might have been maybe there wasn't good eye contact with women I, I'm just speculating I have no idea but I think there has to be more than just the use of the term ladies um, we're talking about we all have to be educated sometimes and we all have to learn by somebody saying, you know what, using, I don't like the term ladies, I wish you wouldn't use it so that we could then modify our conduct in the future. Um, it does seem to me, based on what we know, and granted we don't have the whole story, it seems pretty severe to rescind the contract based on that. Doesn't to you? Well, yes, but it makes me wonder whether there was buyer's remorse for offering the contract in the first place. And this was a, an off ramp that was readily available to the school committee. Uh, I, I think that the question of whether or not uh, uh, Vito, and he signs his name, signed it, he, that's how he signed the email was Vito, uh, uh, indicating that he thought he was pretty comfortable with the uh, school committee members. And by the way, the email had to do with uh, uh, some points about his contract and uh, uh, days off and the like. Pretty, pretty uh, typical routine things to be discussing with the school committee before a contract is finally uh, settled upon. Uh, that there is an issue about whether, I think there is a legitimate issue about whether or not uh, he brings to would bring to the East Hampton School Committee and to the school community and to the community at large, the skills and understanding and uh, 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 insight into diversity issues um, that, well, is a requirement of that job as of today. Well, this is Dan. I, I think the all behind this is, this is, this is a little too, ridiculous from my perspective um and here's why i think this way it's let's say you wrote you used the word ladies you know and somebody did not like that i would understand them being upset they should bring that up and bring that concern to you privately but the fact that you're rescinding a job offer goes back to you, both of your earlier points that this was a contentious vote and i think they wanted to find an excuse to rescind the offer and so they said that there was a microaggression of ladies. I mean, if that's true, I've committed a lot of microaggressions. But people don't bring that up because I've used that term a lot. And I can imagine him using that term as well. I just don't buy it that this was the term. They looked at the email. They said, look, he called us ladies. And let's use that as a microaggression. And so we have the right to rescind the offer. It seems like there's a lot more to this story. And this seems rather petty from my, this is just my personal perspective, not on either Buzz or Bill. But this seems excessively petty. It got national attention. 
um, because of the larger political and cultural issues that are going on around the use of words. But the use of ladies, you know what? You could address an email to him and say, in the future, you got to show a little bit more formality and respect there and not call people ladies. I get that. But at the same time, to claim it's a microaggression and rescind the job offer seems excessively excessive retaliation. Well, it isn't just your opinion. The East Hampton Education Association, which is the district's union of teachers, professional staff, and education support uh, professional, they called out the school committee for the way it treated Perone. They object to the rescission. And the quote that I'm reading in this morning's Gazette says, the East Hampton School Committee has officially labeled the word, in quotes, ladies, as a microaggression and has canceled Dr. Vito Perone despite support from the community on an April 1st Facebook post by the association. It goes on to say, changing votes behind closed doors is unacceptable. Shame on the school committee for participating in cancel culture. That's from the association. That surprised me to read that. Yeah. I mean, it shows you how the, the battles are, battle lines politically are happening locally. It's very interesting to see that. I mean, it, it just strikes me as you go behind the scenes, you rescind the offer means it really wasn't about that word. You're using the word to just find an excuse in order to get rid of them because there was a lot of division about him. There are people who have very passionate views, apparently, about him being superintendent of East Hampton schools. And I just think that now we, now it looks like the, the school committee looks ridiculous and petty and now there's going to be a division within the town like what is really going on in the schools and do we need to change the school committees and that's going to be a new political feud i guess locally in, in east hampton i would say bill is 150 people attending the protest is that a large number for in your mind uh given the, this issue i think it's significant yes uh i've certainly seen many demonstrations that have received a lot of publicity uh, in the Gazette and in other uh, media outlets uh, for demonstrations that were much smaller than that. I also think that Dan's point is really important, which is, among other things, a, 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 a indication of what difficulties the person who is next offered this job is going to face. I mean, there's going to be a lot of hostility uh, and I think that over time that will dissipate. But still, what a terrible situation to put a new superintendent in. And I'm particularly fine, uh, uh, uninspiring from the school committee, and I think misplaced the word microaggressions, which is a buzzword. I mean, it's real. Watch it's it, a Bill. Real <laughs> Sorry about sorry sorry about that. You, that's why you dropped the second Z. But, but, but I know that. But going on to your um, point, Bill, if I could just quickly add, like my concern there is, you also have to give people the opportunity to learn from their mistakes, even if it was a microaggression. It's like people are from different eras, different generations have learned things differently. It's like the fact that you're using a microaggression to go against them seems excessive because you also don't give the opportunity because you also don't give an opportunity for somebody to learn and from that mistake. Let's just say it was a used uh, as a microaggression. And Bill, last word before we take a break. Well, I think that if this is an indication that uh, uh, Mr. Perone would not be a good superintendent because he cannot provide or would not provide leadership to diversity and equity and inclusion issues, then you should never have offered him the job. And if you believe he would be a good leader for East Hampton, then you never should have rescinded the job. 
really That's good place. Uh, it's a really good word, and we'll leave it there. We are going to take a break. When we come back, it's time for On the Mark with Senator Paul Mark. We'll be back right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. It's the all-new Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Brought to you by realtor Craig Delapena. Over 18 years experience selling valley homes within 10 blocks of rail trails near parks and other conservation areas or antique and historic houses. Contact Craig at NorthamptonRealtor.com slash innovator. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster only on WHMP. Attention students, apply now for the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association Student Broadcaster Scholarship and you could be awarded $2,500 towards the 2023-24 academic year. You must be a Massachusetts resident with a declared major in the communications field and currently enrolled or planning to enroll in a broadcast program at an accredited two or four year college. Deadline to apply is Friday, April 14th. The Northampton Radio Group is a proud participant in the MBA Student Broadcaster Scholarship. For an application, visit massbroadcasters.org scholarship. Celebrate the CWC. April 4th, the Center for Women and Community celebrates 50 years providing leadership and advocacy to Hampshire County. Join the Center for a day-long drop-in event with interactive exhibits, guest speakers, awards honoring important people in the Center's history, live performances, and a silent auction with fantastic items to bid on. Drop into the Old Chapel at UMass anytime from 10 to 6 on April 4th to join the fun. For more info and to preview the auction, visit umass.edu slash CWC. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Bread Euphoria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. At the Northampton Williamsburg line, there's something in the air. That sourdough crust pizza, those croissants. Smell that bread? The baguettes? That New York rye? It's Euphoria. Bread Euphoria. Bakery and Cafe. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to Talk the Talk. This is Tuesday, and it is the first Tuesday of the month. We are always so pleased to uh, air on the mark with our Senator Paul Mark, who represents the Berkshire, Hamden, Franklin, and Hampshire District, comprised of 57 of the roughly 350 cities and towns in Massachusetts, the most number of municipalities ever represented by a senator in the General Court of Massachusetts. Hello, Paul Mark. How's it going? It's, if you if you add in the four rep towns I had, I, I've had sixty-one total, which I believe is the most in in, in all history of, of the general court dating back to sixteen thirty. <laughs> and and you've been to every one of your towns, right? I have, yeah, actually. <laughs> which leads me to our first question, which is: given the amount of time you spend on Massachusetts roadways, could you tell us what's happening with rural roads funding here in the Commonwealth? Yeah, in both uh, the House and the Senate, we passed a road bill uh, in the last two weeks that is designed to get money out to the local communities and the BTA and all that fun stuff. And so every every year we do a, uh, what's called a Chapter 90 bill. And under Chapter 90, there's a formula that distributes this funding to all of the communities. And we find that uh, throughout the state, there's flaws in the funding formula, of course, but then specifically in Western Massachusetts and some of the smaller towns, 
it, it, it gets a little tough to compete with the the formulas based on uh, road miles, population, and people employment, people that work in the communities. And so, the idea being that every every town will have something to gain from this. But we on both the House and Senate side, we added an, an additional 150 million in in 25 million dollar increments with more targeted packages that can boost the the, uh, the various communities specifically. And then on the Senate side, something I was really happy to see was we did 25 million dollars designated for rural communities and so based the formula based on population density and road miles and the way this came about was i had some visits uh, by senate president spilka chairman of ways and means mike rodriguez they were both out in the berkshires just fortuitously the weekend before we ended up doing this package and they came out and talked to the mayor north adams uh, senator rodriguez talked to i think 50 town officials from all over my district and uh, last Monday, both of them called me to tell me, you know, we were really moved by things we heard, and we're in the middle of this roads package, so we'd like to try to do something for small towns. And by the time Thursday last week rolled around, uh, we had developed this this uh, new new $25 million um, packet, and I got to speak and give my first speech in the Senate in favor of this and, and thank them and give all, all of the rural legislators credit. And, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big win for the area. Well, is this for regular uh, repair and maintenance, or does this include yep. improvements? Yeah, and so Chapter ninety is one of the few times you kind of just get a check. I guess is the way is the way to say it. And so, what we, what you'd find is that oh boy, some of the small towns that talked there was there was Goshen locally, there was in the Berkshires, Mount Washington, Washington, and Beckett like made these impassioned pleas that. We, we might get, town of Mount Washington has about 150 people, and so we might get forty-five dollars to $80,000 under the normal formula, but we still got a lot of road, and in the end, we have 40 taxpaying households that makes up for everything else. And so the idea, hopefully, will, if this comes out the way we want it to come out, and obviously still has to be approved um, by the House and has to be signed by the governor and implemented, but even if, the, if, even if a town doubles, doubles what they get, that's a gigantic win, and when you're when you're either trying to repair roads that have been damaged over the over the past year, or if you want to invest in something like a new um, a new plow truck, you know something like that, all of this funding goes a, a very long way. Especially again in in a, in a community where I think I, I I don't know the exact number, but over forty of my towns have fewer than five thousand people. So all of those towns, any any aid they get from the state is just extremely critical. Right. I, I think my Hilltown, I, I think we're the second largest land per capita. It's whatever it is. We have mm-hmm. 41 square miles and we have less than 1,800 people. But I have to ask you, when we're talking about the roads and maintenance of the roads, uh, we we just got upwards of 30 inches of snow in that storm that happened, yeah. uh, uh, whatever it was, a couple weeks ago, I think the 12th and the 13th, in Savoy, one of your towns, how much snow did they get in Savoy? Uh, I think Casey, who works for me, got 40 inches, and he, he sent me this photo. It's like his house is almost buried. <laughs> it was yeah. We had trouble getting out of our house. And and so does is this uh, money, this $25 million that, that the Senate has now awarded, does that go towards uh, plowing in the winter as well as fixing roads? With, with with plowing specifically, it's it's funny because I think for the most part it's been a down year. But if if, if towns, t- this is one of the few areas where cities and towns are allowed to deficit spend. So if a town is going into 
deficit because of uh, snow and ice maintenance, then they're allowed to do that, and, and the legislature ends up, and every time it's happened, we have come back and, and um, made sure that they get the money that they need to to, to solve the deficit. Um, but specifically, some of the towns like Plainfield and Goshen that got over 30 inches of snow, and, and Beckett, too, got a, uh, close to 30 inches, uh, are trying to get some kind of MEMA funding, declaring uh, an emergency, and we've been having difficulty with that so far, that generally you don't get a state of emergency unless the federal government declares it, but uh, we're, we're trying to make the case that this was kind of, this was unexpected, it was quick, uh, and, and maybe only a two or three day emergency, but that qualifies the, the towns to get additional additional funding and adi- additional help where I think uh, it would be useful. And MEMA stands for the Massachusetts Emergency Management Act. So I also want to yeah. ask you, you are now uh, one of the committees which you are on, uh, I believe you're the chair of the Joint Committee on Tourism, Arts, and Cultural Development, which is just great that that attention is paid to that. Uh, specifically, you're focused on tourism, I read. Yeah, yeah, tourism uh, for the for the Western Mass region, but also for the whole state. And just in the couple of weeks that I've been the chair, it's been great to have Senate presidents who came out to Mass Mocha in North Adams. She did a tour there, which I thought was a really nice, really nice of her to highlight this is a committee I gave you and I gave you this for a reason. And then she wants to help the, the, that committee be successful and my work on it be successful. So that gave a nice little boost uh, to people in the area and then, you know, also help with the road funding thing. But then also um, we had a, we had a, an award of, of creative sector grants that were distributed in Williamstown last week. Uh, I, I'm the chair, co-chair of the American revolution, 250th anniversary commission. I'm the co-chair of the, Women's History Trail Commission. It's a lot of interesting little assignments all rolled into one. And I get invited to have dinner with the head of the New England Aquarium, like fun things like that that you wouldn't expect. But as, as I keep learning, uh, tourism is actually the third biggest economic sector in Massachusetts. Uh, and I should have mentioned last week in, 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 um, in Springfield, West Springfield, there was a million-dollar award for the five regional tourism, tourism councils, including the one in Hampshire County and the one in Franklin County, to work together uh, to to try to help promote the region over the over the coming year, and we're hearing a lot about post COVID. You know what are what are the patterns of of both tourism, of entertainment, of of, of attending artistic venues? Like what what is it going to look like? Are people finally coming back and feeling normal about things, or have some people like permanently changed? change their appetites based on uh, their, their, their feelings on, on uh, the spread of diseases. Well, Senator Paul Mark, well, well, in terms of poor tourism, um, part of your district, that is Southern Berkshire County, Tanglewood and Jacob's Pillow and all the incredible theater that they have there, obviously it's a source of great tourism and a lot of dollars are generated for the local economy as a result of those tourists. But how about regions like um, uh, the smaller communities that are in Franklin County and Hampshire County and Hamden County. How do you promote tourism there? Yeah, so so the Franklin County Chamber is one of the uh, award winners, and so they they can they can add um, the smaller venues to their promotional materials. But I think more specifically, because I know you're from Ashfield, <laughs> like I was, I've already been to Double Edge Theater, and Double Edge Theater, I, I've had a long term relationship with them. They've been great supporters. I've been as, as, as enthusiastic about supporting them as I ever could be, and now really great to actually physically have them back in my district after 10 years. And so uh, I met with them along with Rep. Natalie Blay uh, last week, 
and we discussed, so what do you need moving forward? They made the point that we never shut down because we're outdoor most mostly uh, our, our performances. And so their capacity was limited by the actual physical constraints of the property and what they're able to do, including like parking. parking. So this is a place that in theory, even if you're a little skittish still about maybe going to an indoor venue, you could come see an amazing piece of art, an amazing performance in front of your own eyes, and it's mostly outside where you, hopefully you feel you feel safe. And so helping them promote what they have and helping the local chamber, which serves as the Regional Tourism Council, promote that I think is important. And then they hit on so many different segments. So when we talk about, yeah, in the Hilltown specifically, what about agritourism? What about ecotourism? What about food tourism? Like there's so much to offer and so much that can be a driver of our region while also working in harmony with the environment that we all care about and sustainable, equitable practices. What a great place to leave it. Senator Paul Mark, thank you so much. And uh, we'll, we'll see you next month on On the Mark. First Hopefully Tuesday. on the mark for the full half hour. Sorry about today. That's okay. It's a pleasure to talk to you always. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Contract negotiations are continuing for Hampshire Regional Education Association members. The group met last night to discuss their current contract. Members expressed concerns over what they say are relatively low teaching salaries. The U.S. Department of Education reports in 2020, Hampshire Regional teachers were earning $70,000 compared to $84,000 statewide. If a fair contract is to be ratified by the school committee, it could take effect the next school year and run through 2026. First Light Hydro Generating Co. is promising to spend $152 million on upgrades at its three facilities on the Connecticut River as part of a new 50-year license renewal to operate. The Flows and Fish Passage Settlement Agreement had to be filed by Friday with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. First Light says the commitments made in the agreement for the hydro pump facility at Northfield Mountain and two hydroelectric dams in Turner's Falls will include direct investments in environmental protection. Environmental advocacy groups have criticized First Light for their impact on fish, the Connecticut River, and the surrounding environment. Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner has submitted her fiscal year 2024 $61.6 million budget proposal to the City Council, a 6.5% increase over the current year's operating budget. Mayor Wiedegardner says they focused on a shared common purpose of providing a balanced city budget that realistically maintains services and programs while confronting pressures beyond their control. Clouds and scattered showers for the next few days. The key thing to remember here is that there's not going to be a ton of rain, and today's no exception. Mostly cloudy, scattered, light showers, mainly north of Northampton, a high of 60 to 64. Showers and pockets of drizzle tonight, low of 40 to 46. Mostly cloudy, scattered showers tomorrow, 48 to 52. Could be some thunderstorms here Thursday afternoon. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP.
You spend seven or eight hours a night together, and you're supposed to decide if you're right for each other in a matter of minutes? This has never made sense to me. So, when you're in my store, trying to decide which mattress is right for you, at some point, I think you and I just need to stop talking. I need to leave you alone, give you plenty of time to lay down, and maybe even forget you're in a furniture store. Hi, it's Robin. Robin from Talon. Think about it. Seven or eight hours, night after night, and what do you really know about mattresses? I don't mean to make it daunting or complicated. I just think you need two things, information and time. If I give you as much information as you want and as much time as you need, I think you'll settle on a mattress you'll be happy with. At least that's the way it seems to go for most people. Talon Furniture, the small, unhurried furniture and mattress store just down the hill from Amherst College. At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started, and we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of you-pick flowers and herbs all season long, and you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to Talk the Talk. This is a uh, wonderful uh, segment for me. It is springtime uh, in my house. I looked out this morning. I would say about uh, maybe 25% of our grass is showing. It's kind of throwing the blanket of snow off of itself. And we even have a few bulbs that are sort of creeping up and sort of suggesting the future that's not far in the future. And meanwhile, there are people uh, in the Commonwealth, we are blessed to have people who really care about the conservation of our freshwater fish and our wildlife and our endangered plants and animals. And they work really hard to restore and protect and manage the land for that wildlife to thrive. And right now, as the snow melts in the hill towns and as we get ready for full-throated springtime, they are busy, and among them is the uh, Central District Supervisor for uh, what we call Mass Wildlife, and that is Fisheries and Wildlife, and that is Todd Olanik, who's with me in the studio, and I'm thrilled that you're here, Todd Olanik. Buzz, I'm thrilled to be here. It's great to see you. Uh, you must be busy, you and your colleagues. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, we are, we are incredibly busy this time of year. Um, about two weeks ago in the Central District, we started rolling our trout stocking trucks, and that is a focus area for us for a good two to uh, two to three months. Uh, we're running stock fish stocking trucks four days a week and two trucks a day from our district, and each district, each other district, is doing the same thing. You know what? I want to circle back to that because yeah. it's really important how we stock our streams and right. lakes and rivers um, for recreation and also just to help the environment. But sure. before we do that, I just have to ask you, we have a department of fish and game in right. Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and we have a division that's called Fisheries and Wildlife. What's the difference? What's right. their mission? So the, okay, so let's talk org structure, okay? <laughs> there we go. Um, we're all these different uh, departments and divisions, uh, bureaus are under the uh, Energy and Environmental Secretariat. Okay, so that includes Department of Utilities, Department of Energy. It includes the Department of Fish and Game, 
Underneath the Department of Fish and Game, you've got the Division of Fish and Wildlife. You've got the Bureau of Environmental Law Enforcement, right? So as you tear down through the organizational structure, you know, it, it splinters us off into more and more specialized areas of focus. Because the mission is so large, yeah. you, you need to have all these different agencies in order to effectuated. And it's very different. You know, a lot of times uh, we hear the confusion in the public between, you know, they get us confused with the Department of Conservation and Recreation, all of our state parks, our state forests. We're a separate agency, a completely separate entity. We focus on our fish and wildlife resources. And um, the environmental law enforcement officers, our EPOs, they're not part of our agency. They're their own separate entity. So a lot of times people get those lines blurred and confused. So let me ask you, you were talking about restocking. Let's start right. there because my question is going to be, what's on your desk right now, Todd Alinek? <laughs> so let's talk with, about uh, making sure that our fish population is healthy. Yeah. So um, one of our constitutional mandates in the Massachusetts Constitution is that our agency provides recreational opportunities with hunting, fishing, and trapping, and other wildlife and fisheries-related outdoor activities, bird watching, things like that. So we're focusing on fishing right now, this time of year. You mean it's not just, recreation doesn't mean just a joystick and a screen? No, no. You can take selfies out there if you want. It's great. And we love seeing posts when people are enjoying the outdoors. Um, we have uh, five fish hatcheries located in the state. Uh, most of them are in the western part of the state. We do have one in Sandwich. We have one in Palmer. We have one in Montague, one in Sunderland, and another one in Belchertown. And we raise uh, approximately 500,000 pounds of fish every year. Wow. And we distribute those statewide to provide that recreational opportunity. Um, people love trout fishing, and so that's what we focus on in our hatcheries. And by providing those extra fish out there, it gives people that recreational opportunity without taxing the uh native population too much. So that way we keep it sustainable. And I've heard it's not just for regular, uh, for recreation, excuse me, but it, it's also, I mean, fish eat insects that are on the surface. There's all kinds of ecological reasons to promote uh, that kind of restocking. Yeah, absolutely. If you think about uh, uh, habitat, uh, regardless of whether it's land animals or the aquatic resources, every critter is part of that entire ecosystem, right? So I, I, back in a previous life, I was in the mechanical field. So I like to um, think about it uh, as a car engine, okay? Uh, if you bring your car to the mechanic and they have that engine torn apart, when they put it back together again, you want all the pieces to go back together again, right? So if you think about the environment and the ecosystem and all the species that are part of that and perform all those ecosystem services for us, you want to try to conserve and main, make sure that every component of that is sustainable, right? So we're paying attention on the landscape, on the habitat, on the aquatic resources, trying to make sure that uh, thing, those habitat needs are available to all species. So it's not just to promote recreation. It's really to promote our environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the, the recreational benefit, the ecosystem services that we get from it, um, that, that's a side, that's a, that's a sideline. That's an additional benefit to what we're doing. So 
we have all these concerns about the sort of tightening habitat that uh, I know where, where we live yeah. in Ashfield and throughout the hill towns and throughout rural, rural western Massachusetts. There, with development, comes a sort of shrinking of the available habitat. What does the division, uh, what we call mass wildlife, yeah. do to help pr- promote uh, safe habitats for our kindred animal spirits? That's one of our main focuses, is um, trying to acquire land, either through uh, direct fee purchase or through uh, conservation restrictions. Uh, we work with many land trusts throughout the Commonwealth. Um, we have land agents that are assigned to our agency that go out and look for those willing sellers and uh, try to purchase land and conserve it. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I remember, one of the things that really stuck with me from uh, my undergrad education was a fact that one of my professors, you know him, uh, Brian Adams, not the Canadian nice. rock star. He's a star on this show. He is, yeah. So one of the things that he um, taught us, and the numbers may have changed since then. We're talking back in the early 2000s. But at that time, 44 acres per day were being developed in Massachusetts. Mm. Um, I just want to interrupt for yeah. one moment. When you sure. said... Either in fee, that means to buy the title. You we actually buy it own outright, it, yeah. As opposed to purchasing development rights. Correct. There we go. Just yeah, the, to clarify the that. in fee means we buy it outright, and the conservation restriction is a private landowner who wants to sell their development rights so that their land is um, conserved as habitat for So them. they get a tax break, but also yeah. we protect the land, even though they own it. And they get a chunk of money, too. Yeah, yeah. so I interrupted you. You're no, right. that's fine. That, that, that could be very helpful for a private landowner who's trying to, you know, protect their legacy of that land, uh, farms, for example, um, but still trying to maintain their farm. So I don't want to go too deeply into this, yeah. but you want that habitat to support whatever wildlife yeah. should be there. Absolutely. So, you know, every critter needs its own kind of habitat, right? A, a moose doesn't need the same food, water, shelter, and space that a salamander does. So you need to have a broad matrix of different kinds of habitat across the landscape, not just in Massachusetts, but regionally on the larger scope. And uh, so we try to uh, look at all of that and, and um, provide for that. Uh, so what else? Are you, what's on your desk right now, Todd Atlantic? It, it is straight out fish stocking, but um, an exciting land purchase just came across the desk. We're purchasing a property in Hardwick, Mass. It's right on a large pond. Um, it's going to be contiguous with another large land holding that we have. Um, so speaking of land acquisition, that's about another 100 acres or so that we're adding to a, one of our wildlife management areas out that way. You are also a select board member, and I dare say a pretty wonderful one in my estimation. I'm blushing, if you can't see me. No, but uh, yeah, he's, he's, I can't see any blushing, but he, maybe he's <laughs> blushing. No, but the reason I mention that is because there is um, something, a uh, serious tension between preserving land for the reasons which you're talking about, which your mission involves, right. and sort of, I don't want to call it, uh, excluding development for people who are looking for affordable housing right. and who are being squeezed out of the housing market by lack of un- availability of adequate inventory for housing. How do you, how do you juggle those two things? It, it is a difficult balance, isn't it? Um, you know, we, part of our agency, uh, within our agency, we contain the 
uh, National Heritage and Endangered or Natural Heritage and Endangered Species section, and they're in charge of all the all those listed species that we have in Massachusetts. Any development that occurs within an area that's been identified to contain endangered species has to be approved through our. Um, Natural Heritage and Endangered Species section. And we try to work with developers to, um, you know, mitigate problems that they might have in developing a piece of land. Uh, If we've identified a particularly sensitive area, we try to guide them in how they could work around that and uh, not have a negative impact on the environment. You have, um, how many people are in the Central District who work for the Division of Wildlife, Fisheries and Wildlife. Right. So um, our agency divides the state up into five different districts. There's a southeast district with the um, office in Bourne. We have a northeast district office in Ayer. Uh, my district office in, in the central part of the state is in West Boylston. We have the Connecticut Valley district office in Belchertown. And the uh, western district office is in Dalton. And each one of those district offices has nine to 10 people on staff, including a receptionist and a district supervisor like me. And so really we have, you know, eight people on the ground to manage. Uh, In my district, we have 55,000 acres of land that we manage. So we're spread out. Dan, you may recall, it was just a few few weeks ago that Brian Adams brought on from the Division of Fisheries and Wildlife, he brought on a bear guy. What was his name? Dave Waddles. Dave Waddles. Oh, was, I remember that. Yeah. He was fantastic and fascinating because yeah. so many of us who get, you know, we sometimes we get all excited when we, we catch a glimpse of a bear. Sometimes we're like, oh, darn it, they're <laughs> going to get my bird feeder. Right. But we don't know that much about them. But Dave Waddle, I'll tell you, since you're his supervisor, did a fantastic job of captivating our imagination. So Dave works for our wildlife section out of the field headquarters in Westboro. He's statewide. He's, he's, we, uh, I have a wildlife biologist that works in my district, but Dave goes statewide. Um, yeah, we were just out. Our district staff was out with him two weeks ago. Uh, and we um, were following up with a collared female that we had. Collar uh, means our, they wear an electronic collar so yep, you could track their, yep, their... Sorry, try not to get too jargony. No, here. that's okay. Um, she has a GPS collar on her, so we get a GPS signal from her, and we can track where she is at all times. And she decided to den on an island in Petersham. So we had this armada of boats that we took out to this island in Petersham, and we checked on her den. She had two newborn cubs. They were both under... Uh, four pounds. Wow, little, little things. Yeah, yeah. It's really cool to check on them, check their health. Uh, we're able to track their range, their reproductive success, and their expansion eastward, eastward because the bear population is at about 4,500 in the state now, and it's expanding and continues to grow eastward. Uh, even though we have a really long hunting season and we provide a great hunting opportunity on black bears, um, it doesn't come close to putting a dent in that uh, population expansion. So it's a win-win in that case. Well, while we're before we take a break, which we're going to take in one minute, I just wanted to ask you, what should people know about, I guess I'm just going to answer the question, part myself and allow you to elaborate, yeah. not feeding bears. That's it, right? Wildlife in general, uh, it's not a good idea to feed them. 
They don't need our help with food. There's uh, plenty of natural food out there for them. If there are unnatural food sources, it disrupts the population. It, they become overpopulated, uh, and they can become problems for people uh, in certain areas. You know, our GPS data on the bear population, there are a lot of bears around Northampton here where we're sitting, and uh, they interact. I'm sure people in the city see them all the time because uh, we see the GPS points, and they're everywhere around here. Wow. Yeah. We are talking with uh, Central District Supervisor for the Division of Fisheries and Wildlife, Todd Alanik, and we'll be back with Todd right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues, our demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 101.5, and 12.40. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Got chronic joint pain? Not having success with steroids, but trying to avoid surgery? Well, thankfully, there's a better way, and now it's available here from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics. I'm talking about new, advanced regenerative medicine treatments that can restore and repair damaged tissue in your bad joints, providing lasting relief with no drugs, no surgery, and no downtime. This is an all-natural way to use highly concentrated healing properties from your own body to give you lasting relief. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in precision regenerative medicine medicine with over 100 clinics across America and literally thousands of satisfied patients. If you've got joint pain due to arthritis, knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, don't just think the old ways of dealing with pain are the only ways. You need to learn more about these new regenerative options that can change your life. Call QC Kinetics now. It's a free consultation with local medical professionals. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about $700,000. The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000. 
Looking for a fun and competitive day out with friends or the office team? The Junior Achievement Annual Golf Tournament is on Friday, June 9th at Crump and Fox in Bernardston. The day will include many contests, giveaways, food, and more. Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts helps prepare young people for real-world career and financial success through in-school and after-school programs focused on financial literacy, career exploration, and entrepreneurship. To register, visit jawm.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. We have the pleasure of speaking with District Supervisor Todd Alanik of what we call Mass Wildlife, which is the Division of Fisheries and Wildlife. And we were talking about um, why we should not feed wildlife these days. I just wanted to point out, Todd Alanik, that uh, there was a fellow a postal carrier in Cambridge who was attacked by a turkey last month. Apparently, uh, he was delivering his mail and trying to get away. He, he, a turkey bit him on the leg in Cambridge, chased him down the street, and he ended up fracturing his hip, and he needed a hip replacement, according to the Boston Globe. So, um, But can you tell us, why are these turkeys and other wildlife, why are they aggressive this time of year? Well, it's springtime, Buzz, and spring is breeding season for most wildlife, for many wildlife. Um, and spring is breeding season for the turkey population. Uh, we have a lot of turkeys in Massachusetts now. Um, it's an incredible conservation success story, the, the wild turkey in Massachusetts. Uh, at the in, end of the 1800s, early 1900s, they were completely extirpated from Massachusetts, due mostly to our, our habitat change that we had here. We, uh, you know, Some historians might uh, remember that the Massachusetts landscape, uh, New England, was completely converted into sheep farming back at that time. There, uh, most of the trees were cut down. Um, there was fields everywhere, and that's not turkey habitat. They need a, a, a mixture between forests and fields. So in They the, need a cover so when you're walking gently through the woods, you could <laughs> be can, scared to death right, when these beating wings... They come out and pounce, right? No, they don't <laughs> pounce, but... Um, so we reintroduced, the agency reintroduced the wild turkey in the late 60s, early 70s. And since that time, the population has just rebounded fantastically. And now they're everywhere, including Cambridge, Massachusetts, where that news story came from. This is breeding season for them. The males do get very territorial, and um, they're, they're defending their territory. They're trying to flock with hens. And um, they could see anything as a threat. They see their reflection in a car hubcap, and they'll attack a hubcap. Wow. Um, yeah, so, so um, you know, during breeding season, the males kind of lose their minds a little bit. And that's kind of where we're at right now at this time of year. Uh, I understand males. Yeah. <laughs> the the uh, turkey hunting season starts on uh, April 24th this year, on Monday, and the youth hunt is on the Saturday before that, the 22nd. Is there a limit to how many turkeys you can? Yes. Yeah. One of the big things that we do for the conservation and the wise sustainable use of any game population is making sure that we set those bag limits uh, so that we don't take too many. And uh, this year, you can take two males in the spring, and in the fall, you could take one of either sex. Mm. Yeah. I've never had a wild turkey. Does it taste differently than what we buy in the supermarket? Um, it it doesn't taste a whole lot different. Uh, differently, I would I would suggest that it has a more intense flavor. It's more flavorful. It's less bland, um, but it's excellent. 
<laughs> so uh, we only have two minutes left, and in those two minutes, Massachusetts, compared to other states, um, how are we doing in terms of protecting habitat? So, we, you know, in, in uh, mass wildlife, with our land acquisition, we try to be as aggressive as we can with acquiring land and, and uh, conserving that open space. We are um, densely populated here in Massachusetts. We, and Massachusetts is the third most densely populated state in the country. So, um, you know, going back to um, what Brian Adams taught in the early 2000s about how rapid the rate of development was, that's always going to be the greatest threat to our wildlife, our fish and wildlife resources is development. And I liken it to a race, right? We're, we're on a race to the middle, Everything that's going to be developed will someday be developed unless we conserve it. And so we're, we're racing against that clock. Who knows? It may take 500 years to get there, but sooner or later, everything that can be developed will unless it's protected. Got it. Important message. And speaking of important messages, in the 30 seconds or so that we have left, what's the takeaway for people at this time of year, springtime, with respect to protecting our environment? Yeah, so um, enjoy the environment, get out there, um, observe wildlife, go fishing, you know, get your fishing license, um, enjoy the outdoor spaces. We learned a lot during the pandemic about how important being out in nature is for our health, and uh, we just want people to get out there and enjoy those spaces that we have. I think that's a great place to leave it. it you know, we live here in this beautiful rural area and enjoying our, rec- our recreational possibilities and just being outside with nature is just uh, so important and rejuvenating, like spring is rejuvenating. Thank you so much. He is the district, uh, Central District Supervisor, Todd Alanik, of our own Division of Fisheries and Wildlife. For those of you who've been listening, thank you so much for joining Talk to Talk. Just remember to walk the walk. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. Pets and people. They belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion WHMP animals. Northampton and WRSI HD2, Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's a